This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson and tonight's special guest is James Gracie, author of the book Dario Argento. With Dracula 3D, the latest film by Dario Argento, due in UK cinemas later this year, tonight we take an in-depth look at the maestro's career with special guest, the writer and Argento scholar James Gracie. So pour yourself a glass of Profondo Rosso, sit back and enjoy. James, welcome to Friday Night Frights. Um, and congratulations on your book, Dario Argento, which is out from Camera Books. Um, it's been out uh, for a couple of years now, and it's had some great reviews, um, appealing to newbie Argento fans as well as uh, um, old, old die-hard Argento fans such as myself. Um, and you've just written, uh, contributed a chapter to a new book on Argento. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, the new book on Argento is hopefully going to be published within the next couple of years. Um, there's quite a few people contributing to it. I think the idea is to take a more sort of academic approach to looking at um, certain areas and aspects of Argento's career as a whole. Um, certain chapters will be dedicated to looking at specific films. Um, my own uh, is attempting to sort of explore the the sexualized representation of violence and death throughout Argento's films. He's often been accused of uh, misogyny and presenting his work um, in a very sort of stylish way that lacks substance. So I will be attempting to argue that um, these representations of violence and death aren't actually sort of they're not pornographied. They stem more from sort of er eroticism um, erotic art um, and the Freudian notion of everything being grounded um, in the spectrum of Eros and Thanatos, you know, the two sort of um, most basic driving forces of life, um, Eros being love, life, reproduction, um, creativity, art, and Thanatos being um, death, destruction, uh, nihilism, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. So, really, we shouldn't be taking his work literally. literally. It's, it's, it's working more of a metaphorical way in terms of his content, in terms of his sexualized violence. He's often been accused of, you know, his work is all sort of style and no substance. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of the time people sort of overlook the fact that, you know, he's, uh, his influences stem a lot from art, from, from cinema, from literature, philosophy. Um, and I think when you sort of, when you delve into a lot of his titles and look at how he, he presents these sort of opulent scenes of violence and bloodshed, um, particularly whenever it's directed at women, um, 
the comparison between Argento's approach to this sort of um, shady subject matter is very akin to that of Edgar Allan Poe, who Argento mm. has often cited as being a major influence on his work. Um, in Poe's philosophy of composition, he talks about the death of a, a beautiful woman being the most um, melancholy, poetic subject in the world. And I think, you know, Argento sort of, he, he approaches his work from the same, from the same viewpoint as Poe. Yeah. I mean, his new film, Dracula, I mean, at first glance, it seems like quite, quite an unusual subject matter for Argento, but I suppose when you consider his childhood influences, um, it's probably not as unusual as you might have thought. I think so, yeah. It's also interesting that um, Dracula is... There's a, a, a very um, sort of subtle sexual anxiety that flows throughout the pages of, of Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, if anyone's going to be able to tackle that in an appropriate way, it's going to be Dario Argento, whose work is sort of, you know, brimming with all these notions of, of sex and death and this sort of the shadowy realm, you know, with the two entwine. Mm, yeah, that's... Having said that, um, from, from what I've read, I haven't seen Dracula 3D myself, but from what I've read about it online, reviews have been sort of mixed to rather negative. Yeah, which is a pattern that seems to have sort of dogged Argento for certainly the last sort of 10 or 15 years. But let's go, let's go back to the beginning for you. Um, is there a particular film that sort of drew you to Argento or was it reading about him in a magazine? What, what, was, it, what was the kind of first, the moment of discovery for you in terms of discovering this this new wondrous film director? Um, I think we'll have to go back to about 1996 or 97. Mm. And um, the release of Scream yeah. <laughs> into cinemas. Um, my introduction to Italian horror and to Dario Argento. Um, basically, it, it all stems from, from Wes Craven's Scream. Uh-huh. Um, I sort of, I became mildly obsessed with that film for a while. And from that... I began to explore other American slasher movies from the 80s, stuff like Hell Night, Terror Train, House and Sorority Row. Um, and as I sort of delved deeper into, I, I was reading a lot about um, slasher movies, um, stuff by um, Robin Wood, looking at the sort of, you know, the conservative morality of, yeah. of these slasher movies and... The names Mario Bava and Dario Argento kept recurring. You know, these guys were sort of being cited as having a major influence on the American slasher movies of the 80s. So, of course, I had to um, check out their work for myself. Um, And I think the first film of Argento's that I saw was Suspiria. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Closely followed by Inferno and Trauma. A bizarre double bill, I think, on the sci-fi channel one night. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like a, a great introduction. Uh, the same for me. It was uh, Suspiria followed by Inferno. Uh, back in the old days of VHS, in fact, um, the old Suspiria release on Thorny MI. I don't know if you ever saw that one. It, was, it carried quite a, a lengthy essay on Argento on the back sleeve, funnily enough. Um, and also 
it had that fantastic quote from, I think it was Alexander Walker or somebody in the Evening Standard, one of the great sort of film blurbs of all time. It just said, don't think panic. And, uh, <laughs> and I think if anything was going to sort of get a you know, teenage mind going, it, it was that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about his early career before his first film, Bird with a Crystal Plumage. Uh, there's not very much known about his early screenwriting, and I, I think a lot of people are not, are, are not as aware of the fact that he's, um, he actually did contribute to quite a few films as a screenwriter. He's got quite a, a lengthy list of screenwriting credits. Um, the obviously the, the well-known one is Once Upon a Time in the West, but he, he did write a surprisingly, a, in a surprisingly wide variety of genres, didn't he? Westerns and he war did, yes. movies and so on. What can you tell us about those early screenplays? What does it tell us about him? Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, like I was saying before, um, the, the approach that Argento uses um, or utilizes whenever he's um, he's writing scripts and making films, it sort of it does stem from a very kind of um, analytical uh, place. He started he began his career as a film critic um, for a, a newspaper in Rome, yeah. And he eventually branched out into writing screenplays. As you mentioned, he wrote um, the story of Once Upon a Time in the West with Bernardo Bertolucci for Sergio Leone. Um, from that, he also he wrote a number of World War II dramas, um, quite a few spaghetti westerns, um, kinky sort of sex comedies, uh, romantic dramas. Hmm. Um, and a few of those films had th- aspects of the thriller, um, although he had yet to write, you know, a sort of a straight thriller or horror movie but he found that those were the aspects of the scripts that he'd enjoyed writing most um so when it came to writing his first film the bird with the crystal plumage which was adapted very loosely from frederick brown's uh, murder mystery mm. novel the screaming mimi um he 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 decided to write that for himself and he wanted to direct that himself again because he'd become so interested in the mechanics of fear and creating suspense and terror um, but before that, he, yes, he dabbled in quite a few, quite a few genres. I mean, his collaboration with Leone and Bertolucci is quite intriguing, isn't it? You could almost see him as sort of standing somewhere in the middle of those two characters. Yes, yes, the very sort of um, the, the technical aspects of of Leone, the way that he composes his shots. Everything is just so beautifully choreographed, and mm. you could say exactly the same thing about Argento. And again, the sort of the more arthouse leanings of of Bertolucci's films are again they're evident in in you know quite a few of Argento's films, particularly his early Jolly, like the Animal Trilogy, mm. which is the Crystal Plumage, Cat or Nine Tails, and Four Flies in Grey Velvet, and even you know the artfulness of his more um, uh, gothic imbued horror like Suspiria and Inferno. They're shot in a very um, artistic way. Mm. Um, in, in your book, in the introduction, you make the very good point about him coming up 
into the industry in the sort of heyday of um, of the Italian uh, film sort of renaissance after the Second World War. Um, I mean, on the one hand, you've got the sort of art house success of Fellini and Antonioni and so on and so forth. And then on, on the kind of the other end of the scale, you've got this incredible burst of, I suppose, exploit. in a way, it's kind of exploitation cinema, isn't it, in, in terms of, you know, this sort of Italian rip-off industry. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of intriguing that maybe Argento could have gone either way. Uh, um, you know, he could have gone further towards the sort of art house than he did, or he could have gone further towards the... Um, the exploitation angle of it. But what was his, the influence of his father, do you think, in terms of producing his films? I think it was a, a big influence. I mean, his father was kind of a, a revered producer in, in Italy. His mother was a, a very well-respected, internationally renowned photographer. So Argento was kind of growing up in this very um, creative, glamorous Lifestyle. One of his earliest childhood memories is um, sitting on Sophia Loren's lap. Yeah. I think at one of his mother's um, photo shoots. I think um, I think I'd remember that too as well. You know? <laughs> yes, but I think a lot of the um, the Italian filmmakers who had sort of um, that maybe began their careers in more sort of exploitative affair, you can still see that. Um, uh, the style in which they shoot their films is, you know, it, it does kind of tend to veer towards more uh, art house leanings. The way that they set up their shots, the use of um, the use of music, everything being so, you know, exquisitely choreographed, and the juxtaposition of that with, you know, such brutal violence. I think that's what makes a lot of Italian horror cinema, especially the giallo, so interesting. It's that kind of that dichotomy between, you know, the, the kind of the very arty appearance with the grindhouse sleaziness of it all. Yeah, I, I mean, David Hemmings made a slightly disparaging remark about Argento, I think, in his autobiography. He, he, he described Argento as a, a would-be Antonioni, kind of suggesting that he was something of a... A lesser talent, maybe. Do you think that's, you know, a fair comment from Hemmings, or what do you? Th- where do you think he was coming from when he said that? Um, I'm I'm not too sure. I would agree with him on that. I'm afraid. <laughs> I I do think his casting in Deep Red, um, and indeed the central uh, plot device in in Deep Red of this sort of um, something has been misidentified or misrecognized. They are very deliberate sort of um, allusions to uh, Antonioni's um, blow-up. Yeah. I think, you know, Argento did kind of want to align himself with, with people like that. Um, and you can really, I mean, you can see that in the way that Deep Red is shot. It's this kind of big, grandiose, epic um, presentation of you know, what, what is arguably a rather sort of convoluted story. Um, but no, I, I don't think I would agree with, with Hemmings when he said that. I, I, I think, you know, Argento's um, film work is every bit as uh, masterful and 
you know, could arguably fall into the category of art house as Antonioni, well, as Antonioni stuff. Um, but I think it's because he's, he's worked, he's spent, you know, with the exception of one film, um, everything that he's made has sort of fallen into the horror genre or it's been a, a giallo movie, you know, genres that have sort of been maligned by critics yeah. since, you know, the dawn of cinema, really. Yeah. It's a genre that's never really um, been taken as, as seriously as it could because of its, you know, more sort of exploitative aspects. And as you say, I mean, Argento has that's that kind of background as a film critic, doesn't he, where his films are full of quotations from other films, aren't they? Uh, kind of cross-referencing and intertextual and so on and so forth. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about his first film then, his first feature film, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Um, often been attributed as kind of kick-starting the giallo genre. Um, I mean, obviously before that we had Barber's work and so on. But do you, do you think that's true to an extent that that film sort of kick-started that, that, that genre? Absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, uh, there were a number of giallo movies before that. Um, Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood and Black Lace, which came out in the early 60s. Um, they sort of helped set the... Um, the structure and the blueprint of subsequent films, including Argento's own The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. But I think because it was so well received, it, it achieved a lot of critical acclaim upon its release and by you know a lot of positive word-of-mouth reviews. Um, it did a lot of box office in Italy. And again, it, I think, was quite a big hit um, outside of Italy and other places in Europe and indeed in the States. Um, but that, I mean, he sort of... The, the film would be a giallo um, with all the films that followed it subsequently. Um, a lot of the, the themes, such as voyeurism, yeah. um, the, the style, you know, the, the look of the killer, the black leather gloves... Um, gender issues, uh, psychosexual deviancy. Um, Sure, Argento did kind of lift some of that from Blood and Black Lace, but I think he put enough of his own stamp on it that um, it sort of made people sit up and and pay attention. And then, sure enough, the, the copycats start to follow. Yeah, And Italian cinema generally sort of... Um, ran in, in cycles anyway. Um, if something proved popular, then it sort of, you know, it spiraled from there. You would get, like in the um, the early 70s, mid-70s, you got all these Jalo movies, and then from there, the sort of the, the cannibal movies, zombies, that sort of thing. Uh, it just takes one one film to sort of ignite a trend, you know, that kind of wanders around for a while and then eventually loses its popularity. Well, just going back to what you were saying about the sort of codes and conventions of the sort of giallo movie and the way that uh, Argento kind of crystallised them in his first film, do you think he might have become something of a victim of his own success? Um, 
and, and felt constricted working within that genre? I think so, yes. After uh, his third film, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, um, I think it was very apparent that uh, the giallo was a really popular um, cycle at the time. Um, and he did, he kind of resented that. He moved into television. Um, and this is really where the sort of the comparisons with Alfred Hitchcock come into play. Yeah. Um, he was the host of a, a TV show called Door Into Darkness. He, I think, it consisted of four episodes, all of which were produced by him. Several were directed by him and, and written by him. Um, and it, it proved immensely uh, popular and really kind of established Argento as a household name. But he was still kind of um, attached to or associated with you know, horror and, and the giallo. So after that, um, he really kind of bucked the trend and he filmed a historical drama called Five Days of Milan, um, which he basically said, you know, this is a, a film for, for Italian audiences. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's the sort of, um, it's the odd one out in his in his career because it's not... It's not a horror film. It's not in any way sort of psychological. Um, I think it's actually, uh, it plays out as, as a sort of a metaphor for the student riots in Paris in 1960. The, the date kind of escapes me at the moment, but yeah. I think um, the same the same subtext and the same uh Metaphor was utilised by um, Argento's co-writer of Once Upon a Time in the West, Bernardo Bertolucci, in yeah. his film The Lovers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting that Argento's tried to sort of make a bolt for the door at that stage. It, it, it's something he shares in common, I think, with a lot of directors who get sort of pigeonholed into, into the horror genre. Uh, that they, fairly early on in their career, they try and sort of get out and, and do often to do uh, try to, to try to do films that have a sort of social realist or sort of social issue based sort of content um, obviously Romero comes to mind but even as way you know way back in the 30s with Todd Browning and mm-hmm. uh, James Whale uh, and so on but um, Argento has never really been thought of as a sort of political filmmaker, has he? Even though I sort of read recently that he did run for office, uh, in a political office in in um, Italy. It's yeah, it's, it's that's true. He um, politics never really uh, features in in much of his films or in any of his films. Um, I think. I can't really say why, um, other than maybe with the exception of The Five Days in Milan. Well, um, it's actually a film that I've not seen, and I, I, I suspect that probably not, not many listeners will have seen it either, because I don't think it's readily available. Um, I'm presuming that you've seen it. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Well, I, um, whenever I was researching my book a couple of years back, um, I kind of, you know, I had to make an effort to track down everything that Argento had made, yeah. including stuff like Five Days in Milan and Door Into Darkness, which, you know, they're kind of, they're not readily available. Um, 
I'm afraid to say my own copy, uh, which was acquired from eBay, um, isn't the best uh, of quality. Um, it's a kind of a mishmash of um, there's there's some political stuff in there, uh, historical drama, very inappropriate comedy, but also <laughs> interestingly, you can see um, his uh, his camera techniques. Um, really coming into play. There's lots of um, beautiful kind of sweeping shots, um, point of view, steady cam shots, um, moving in and around all these very sort of elaborate um, buildings. Um, aside from that, though, it's I, I really don't think that there would be anything of of interest in in that film for you know people who are kind of who know Argento as a horror director yeah. other than, you know, it's kind of, it's an oddity in, in, in his career. Well, it's interesting what you were saying about the, the, the kind of inappropriate humour. That's something that it features in a lot of his films. And I find a lot of his films are sort of, there's an element of where they kind of great um, Visually as well, and in terms of the editing, there's often a sort of... And the, the narrative structure, there's a sort of sense of disjointedness about his films. What, what do you make... Do you agree with that? And, and if so, what do you make of it? But I think a lot sort of that can feed into um, how Argento is playing with his audience. It, in certain circumstances, it can be very unnerving. Mm. Um, he goes from extreme... Uh, close-up shots yeah. to kind of more um, wider, expansive shots. You don't really know where you're going to be seeing things from next. He plays around with different um, point-of-view shots. Um, you can be seeing events from from the killer's point of view, from the victims, from inanimate objects in some cases. Um, or sometimes, um, like that scene in Deep Red... Uh, it's just after two of the characters have um, finished a conversation and they walk down the street, the camera remains where it is. Yeah. It sort of appears to take on, you know, a persona of its own. It sort of drifts off and starts watching TV through someone's um, someone's window. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, the the way that that he edits his films. Um, I think it was David Boardwell said that that was one of the things that kind of aligned Argento's work more with um, in keeping with art house tradition because of the sort of the very stylistic editing. Um, and again, it just completely uh, it results in disorientation in the point of view from the point of view of the, of the audience. Um, you often don't really feel safe while watching mm. an Argento film. Yeah. Uh, things can be very kind of suddenly in your face and then not. <laughs> yes, I mean, the, the tone tone is often very uneven. I mean, the, 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 what, the, the part that always kind of sticks in my mind is, you know, after that amazing opening in Suspiria and uh, we get the, the, the kind of final shot of the carnage with the, the girl with the, the shard of glass through her head and then suddenly it cuts to a shot of, Daniel, the blind man, just kind of walking along with his dog. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of the tonal shift is such that you think, my God, they must, 
they must have cut a scene out or something like that. There's a kind of uh, a kind of slightly a slight disjointedness, almost a kind of a sort of haphazardness in the way that the film's being assembled, which I find is quite a, a characteristic of Argento's films. And uh, I'm not sure personally how how much of that is deliberate, as you say, a kind of deliberate attempt to kind of wrong-foot the audience, and how much is a kind of, I don't know, a, a flaw, really, in his films. But it's interesting to, to, to you know, uh, just to kind of think about the way he's, he puts his films together and those sort of strange surfaces that he has. But let's go back to... Um, let's go back to Deep Red... I mean, in this film, although he returns to the giallo, there's a very strong sense, isn't there, that he's moving away from it. He's sort of expanding himself, moving more towards the sort of horror and the supernatural elements. Yes, yes. Particularly with the use of uh, Helga, the psychic, and um, all the talk of uh, spiritualism and telepathy, which, again, he would pick up on in the likes of uh, Phenomena which was a, a much more deliberate blend of um, giallo traits and supernatural sort of paranormal horror. Um, you can really see the beginnings of that in Deep Red. I think Deep Red was a reaction to all of the, um, the, the, the giallo titles of the time. Um, and Argento was kind of saying you know, this This is how you make a giallo. And I think there's there's a lot of um, deliberate kind of uh, self-referentialism in, in Deep Red. Um, it sort of, on one hand, it epitomizes everything that the giallo is, but at the same time, it kind of, it pokes a little bit of fun at it and it sort of picks it apart here and there a little bit. Um, which is something that Argento would also do in, in Tenebrae, which is probably um, one of his most uh, personal films um, and the most significant film in terms of him directly addressing uh, all these allegations of, of misogyny that he's mm. um, been accused of throughout his career. But, yeah, all, all of that sort of um, comes to... Uh, uh, kicks off in with Deep Red. Um, it's a film that exists in a couple of different versions, isn't it? There's quite a long, a longer cut that I think is about two hours, and then there's a sort of, not, I think it's 96, 97-minute cut. Uh, is he a director that's suffered a lot with kind of alternate versions, the way that some directors have, or is this his only film that sort of ex- exists in, in different versions? He's definitely one of those directors who has um, faced a lot of censorship over the years. Yeah. Um, I think most notably would be the likes of Tenebrae and Phenomena, which were drastically cut um, to the extent that with Phenomena, it was kind of, it was rendered um, just such a, a mess when it was released in the States as Creepers. I mean, yeah. whole, whole scenes were cut from that um, that kind of made it a bit 
kind of incomprehensible. Although, you know, there are those who would say that it is, it was already incomprehensible <laughs> before the cuts were made. Yeah. These are, pres- um, these are presumably distributors' cuts um, made, to, made for the different markets' places, I suppose. Yes, I believe so. Um, I think he's got off fairly lightly in Italy itself. Um, I, I, I don't really recall any instances of his work, you know, facing major cuts um, there. He's always been... Um, sort of astute enough and I suppose powerful enough to ensure that you know his vision is delivered to the audience as he had intended um, to do with he eventually set up his his brother has produced a lot of his work um, and again, because he's sort of become such a household name in Italy, yeah, he has sort of, he, he has a master reputation and a certain amount of power that ensures that um, he doesn't really have to answer to anyone. But outside of, of Italy, yes, his, his work has often been sort of shredded in some cases. Sure, let's talk about some of his key collaborators then before we go into sort of looking at Suspiria. I mean, obviously, one of the one of the great collaborators is Morricone, isn't it? What can, what can you say about his collaboration with Morricone? Um, well, Morricone scored uh, Argento's first three films, um, collectively known as the Animal Trilogy. That's mm. The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tails, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Um, Morricone supplied him with these sort of jazz-infused... Yeah. Um, most hallucinatory uh, pieces of music um, and really kind of off-kilter, distorted um, soundscapes, I suppose, for the more kind of tense uh, moments in in the films. The last film that they worked on was... um, They had a bit of a falling out after Four Flies and Grey Velvet. I think essentially Argento was dissatisfied with the, the music that Morricone had been um, creating for him. Argento didn't see it as progressive enough for the kinds of um, the kinds of films that he was making and the, the direction that he wanted to go in. Yeah. And then his sort of, his collaboration with um, Claudio Simonetti and Goblin. Mm. Um, but eventually he made up, Morricone and Argento made up and Morricone scored... Uh, the Stantel Syndrome and the Phantom of the Opera for Argento in the 90s. Mm. And, you know, in a way, the, the Stantel Syndrome was sort of, it was Argento going back to basics, coming back to Italy after um, not entirely successful excursions to the States um, where he made Trauma and Two Evil Eyes. Um, that would kind of they'd been maligned by critics and, and fans. Kind of saw him as selling out and diluting his 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 work for American audiences. Um, so he came back to Italy. He wrote probably one of his most brutal screenplays, which was the Stendhal Syndrome. Hmm. Um, the violence in that is not as stylized as violence in his other work. It's more kind of more raw, more brutal. 
it was the first time rape had been depicted in any of his films. Um, it's quite a shocking scene, isn't it? Uh, it, it kind it of take, I mean, ta- takes you by surprise that Argento would would portray it in such a kind of brutal, quite realistic way. Yes, it's rendered even more disturbing because um, he's. It's this is his daughter, yeah. Asia. He's yeah. um, subjecting her to this kind of brutal onslaught. Um, but again, this this film, I I see it as a react as a reaction on Argento's part to to his critics. He's kind of holding up his middle finger, saying, "Well, if you think I'm selling out and I'm diluting my products, then you know, have a look at this." And I think um, his collaboration with Morricone and the soundtrack for that, which is just this sort of really sinister, disturbing cacophony of um, disembodied voices and, and, and whispers yeah. um, and haunting string arrangements. That was all very deliberate as well, I think. You know, Morricone is kind of one of the most revered Italian composers or just film composers um, in general, you know, of all time. And I think for them to be working together again was kind of, yeah, a pretty big deal for Argento. Yeah, I mean, it's akin almost to sort of Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann, really, isn't it? Even down to the falling out that you described. (laughs) But, you know, Hitchcock never got back with Herrmann, but Argento got back with Morricone, which is interesting. But anyway, you know, just sticking with the music for a minute, which can kind of take us back to Suspiria. I mean, uh, the Goblin's theme to Suspiria is one of the great, I think one of the great horror kind of themes in isn't it and perfectly kind of encapsulates that sort of fairy tale aspect of the film mm-hmm. everything about Suspiria is just you know an attack mm. on your on the senses um you're kind of your eyes are bombarded by all these very kind of um beautifully majestic visuals everything is just mm. so big and elaborate and it's exactly the same with the music it's just you know ear splitting mm. from the kind of um rasping screeches to the um quietly tinkling um music box melody and then the more kind of um metallic battering sounds of some of the tracks it's just an onslaught mm. and he collaborated with goblin didn't he on that he did, yes. Do you, do you know kind of what the nature of his contribution was to the to the soundtrack? I'm not sure. I think um, he was involved with scoring from the get go, and yeah. they also they they played rough um, cuts of the music before it had been kind of you know completed. Mm. Um, on, set on set to, un- yeah. to unnerve the actors and get everyone into the kind of into the sort of mood that Argento wanted to establish. Um, there is a, a very brief documentary on one of the editions of Suspiria that I have that kind of it's sort of very brief kind of um, behind the scenes glimpses of Argento in the studio with Goblin and he's kind of there and kind of really getting into it and flailing his arms around. I think he might have contributed to um, some of the, the vocal work on the soundtrack. Hmm. Um, 
you know, talking about the intensity of Suspiria that you've just been kind of describing so vividly, I mean, Argento's often maintained that the intensity of his films come from the script writing process. And I, I think there's a quote where he said, nobody tops me in Italy because I just put so much into the script writing. You know, I really sort of sweat blood and I don't allow myself to go out. Uh, until I, I just sit there in, a, in an empty room and kind of force these incredible visions out of myself. Uh, and yet some pe- people tend not to, tend to kind of underestimate his writing ability, don't they? Uh, in terms of I'm thinking that the f- his films are almost made on the set or they're made in the editing or they're made in, in the music, but it's the concept really, isn't it, from the outset that, that make, makes him so special in a way. That's true. I, I do think um, his his writing has, you know, often overlooked. I guess you could say it's understandable just because of the sheer um, spectacle, the, you know, the visual aspects of his work. It kind of overshadows everything, especially in films like Suspiria and um, and Inferno. Uh, but yeah, he he kind of. Um, he takes himself off. He goes to stay in a villa in the country. You know, he'll just completely shun all human contact um, and just kind of really get himself into that mindset where he is unnerved himself. And, you know, all of that will basically go into into the stories, into the writing. Um, and I, I think because of, because of the style of his work... Um, he is often compared to Hitchcock, but I, you know Hitchcock was very kind of linear. Argento is his style is um, there's more kind of uh, fluidity about it. And again, we were talking about the editing techniques, and you know mm. it kind of seems very disjointed. And um, he sort of almost shoots from the hip on set. You know, he he's more concerned with with camera work and moving the camera around and creating atmospheres. Um, you kind of find it difficult to imagine him working from from storyboards that have been you know gleaned from the script well there's cer- certainly in Suspiria there are scenes that seem to be almost conceived purely as visual sort of set pieces and you can imagine that these are the things that he's kind of forced out of himself in that villa that you that you mentioned uh the, I mean the, the one scene that's kind of jumped into my mind now is just a it's simply a scene where the the camera pulls back to kind of frame a shot through a light bulb, which is, yes. is you know, it's a clearly a, a, almost a kind of conceptual piece that he, he, he quite, you know, quite possibly came up with in the script writing process. But I suppose the, his most famous piece of that kind of conceptual work is probably that, that, that um, Lou McCrane shot in Tenebrae, isn't it? What, yes. what, what, what do you think of that shot? Um, it's an astounding shot. Uh, again, it sort of, it just appears to exist um, in and of itself. It doesn't really, it doesn't drive the plot forward in any way. It's just, you know, Argento kind of um, reveling in his technical mm. expertise. Yeah, I think actually um, that shot... For that shot, he used the Lumacrane. Yeah. 
and I, I believe that was the first time um, that device had been used in an Italian film production, which again kind of demonstrates uh, Argento's enthusiasm for technology um, to tell his stories. He was also the first um, dire uh, director to use CGI in an Italian uh, film production with the Stantal Syndrome. Um, I'm sure there are quite a few other sort of firsts um, that um, Argento uh, achieved in Italian uh, cinema. Hmm. So let, let's move on to Inferno, though. Um, s still, I think, one of the most, if not the most beautiful, beautifully photographed film I've ever seen um, by... Romano Albani, I think. Albani, is it? The, uh, the cinematographer? Yeah. Well, what do you think to the, f the photography of the film? What can you tell us about that? It's probably one of my favourite Argento movies. Um, it was also one of the first that I saw. And what still sticks in my mind about it, um, even after all these years and having watched it so many times, is, is the look of it. Yeah. And, and the lighting. It's all kind of... Um, deep blues and yellows and reds, um, just kind of a slightly different primary palette from Suspiria, but um, I think just as bewitching. Mm. It just conjures such an otherworldly atmosphere. Um, and some of the scenes in that, you know, for, for a horror film or just for any kind of film, just kind of really speak to the unconscious, to the subconscious. Yeah. Particularly the scene where... Irene Miracle's character, Rose, is investigating the, the basement of her building and she kind of, she drops her keys into this puddle, what appears to be a puddle, and as she kind of reaches, just disappears into it. And it's revealed to be the room that's completely submerged underwater. Yeah. And of course, she kind of, you know, descends into that. Um, and it's just such an eerie, moody uh, moment Again, you know, it kind of, um, it appears to be, to just exist in and of itself. It's, there's so many parts of Inferno that are like that. There's these kind of, well, a lot of Argento stuff is like that. It's kind of, you know, driven by various set pieces that just become so kind of memorable and, you know, take on a life of their own outside of the film. Even the opening scene, which is, you know, of just somebody sitting at a writing desk is absolutely riveting isn't it just by the way that he combines the image and the sound and the, the appearance of the titles um, yeah and again just kind of really um, highlighting the fairy tale aspects mm. of the film I mean it is kind of like a, a Hansel and Gretel if you will for yeah. adults yeah um, the, the brother and the sister um, following these kind of um, breadcrumbs of clues, uh, the kind of monstrous matriarch in the form of this evil witch who wants to unleash untold darkness and suffering upon the world. You know, it is kind of, it's the stuff of, of fairy tales, but kind of devastatingly violent. And, and again, because the film looks so beautiful, it's just... You do kind of it does create this very um 
strange reaction in audiences. You know, it's kind of, it's exciting and alluring to look at, but a very a repellent at times. I mean, the scene in the park where the bookkeeper, uh, the guy who owns the bookshop, um, Kazanian, I believe, yeah, uh, is kind of, you know, eaten alive by rats coming out of a sewer. Anyway, he followed that with Tenebrae, didn't he? Which was maybe the first sign that critics were beginning almost to sort of turn against him a little bit. Um, what did you make of that uh, initial sort of critical reaction to Tenebrae? And well, it was um, it was on the, the video nasty list in the UK mm. in the eighties, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I again, I think because of Argento's presentation of violence um it got him into a lot of um trouble with uh, with tenebrae um again that kind of um fetishistic almost sexualization of violence is very evident in in tenebrae um most of the victims are beautiful women, they're all kind of made up to look, you know, as stunning and appealing as possible. Um, but again, going back to what you, we were talking about earlier with um, Argento's screenwriting being quite often overlooked, Tenebrae is interesting because I think, you know, the writing in that is probably amongst Argento's best. And in that script, he was addressing these kind of accusations of misogyny. Yeah. Um, head on it's a very uh, reflexive screenplay um, and you can almost hear Argento kind of saying some of the lines himself like the uh, the scene where the writer Peter Neal is being interviewed by his former student um, Tilda mm. mm -hmm. and she's basically asking him you know why uh, his his work is so misogynist and yeah. misogynistic, and why he hates women, and you know his response is no, I don't. You know, I, I love women, and and you know me, and this this is not true. That's essentially Argento kind of you know addressing his critics, um, and also kind of you know, again with the, the references to literature, um, there's I think he actually a character quotes um, Conan Doyle at one stage. Yeah. Um, and they're talking about the, you know, the, the structure and the dynamics of um, murder mystery plots and whodunits and um, whether or not the artist can be responsible for, uh, you know, an adverse audience reaction um, to their art. At one stage, one of the, the characters says, you know, if um, someone shoots someone else with a Smith & Wesson, do you go and accuse you know, the makers of Smith & Wesson guns of murder. Um, and again, that's Argento kind of saying that he's not really responsible for getting into that debate, you know, uh, does cinema have, does violence in cinema have an effect on society? Um, it's also interesting because I think the genesis of, of this script for Tenebrae um, came from just after Inferno had been released, Argento was in the States for a while. Yeah. And he had a few encounters with um, a rather 
avid fan uh, who started sending him death threats and basically wanted to um, hurt, maybe even kill Argento in a way that kind of, you know, represented how this fan had become affected by Argento's violent films. It's certainly a fascinating case of sort of life imitating art, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it, what do you make, though, of the of the revelation that Peter Neal is the killer at the end? It's almost like a sort of Argento saying, no, I'm not a misogynist, etc., etc., and then turning around and admitting culpability at the very last minute and sort of yeah. <laughs> kind of so he kind of left thinking oh what i don't really know now where where i stand with this film you know it's kind of interesting the way he sort of pulls the rug out he's almost committed to pulling the rug out from your feet isn't he yeah. at, at all I think, at all turns uh, it's a very playful film. It, yeah. it demonstrates, you know, yeah. a certain playfulness. <laughs> uh, well, perhaps him simply saying, look, let's not take it all too seriously at, at the end of the day. Um, but uh, it did seem to kind of mark a, a kind of a, a, a sort of wind change, really, in terms of the way his films were received critically, because then we went on to Phenomena, which obviously had a lot of problems that you've already sort of described uh, and was very badly sort of received, wasn't it? And then he sort of dropped out of directing for a while, didn't he, to concentrate on producing? He did, yes, yes. Um, also, I think with Phenomena, it's, um, it was the first film that Argento shot in English. Mm. Um, usually his films kind of had these international casts and everyone would be speaking in their own, their own lingo. Um, that they would have been shot without sound and kind of overdubbed later, you know, always with a view to being released internationally. But with Phenomena, he decided to shoot in English. Um, and I think it kind of, it suggests that he, Argento has always kind of wanted to get his films out to as wide an audience as possible. And again, later, whenever he went over to the States um, to make the likes of Trauma and Two Evil Eyes, um, he just he wants as many people, uh, you know, as big an audience as, as possible, really. Hmm. Well, the, the next film of his was Opera, wasn't it? Which I know that he considers to have been a horrible experience. But I, I found it to be at least a sort of partial return to form. Uh, what did you think to the film? Um, again, in terms of... Uh, The presentation of violence, opera again kind of demonstrates that sort of it's fetishized hmm. and very kind of Freudian with the uh, the female protagonist having these flashbacks to um, when she saw her mother uh, sort of ensconced in very sadistic, unsavory sexual practices with the character who turns out to be the killer at the end of the film. Um, Opera also has some of Argento's most iconic imagery, mm. the, the, the various shots with uh, Betty and the, the needles taped under her eyes. So she basically has to look at these 
um, scenes of brutal, sadistic violence. She can't look away if she blinks or closes her eyes. You know, she'll cut them to shreds. She has to watch everything. And that kind of serves as the perfect metaphor um, for Argento, you know, wanting his audience to not look away. He is revered for scenes of violence. Um, you could say that's why a lot of people watch his his films because, you know, they kind of, they, they know what they're going to encounter and he wants people to watch that. He doesn't want them to look away. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about his films very often kind of depicting a form of Freudian disturbance which kind of lies in in the childhood childhood of often the killer or one of the characters uh, so his very next film which is called Trauma which kind of in a way promised that he might really kind of get down to the you know brass tacks with, with, with regards to the sort of Freudian aspect so how do you think he did with trauma and, and Stendhal syndrome as films? Trauma is interesting. Argento um, referred to it as uh, having deep soul. It was his deep red for the new, for the next generation, for a new generation of of um, of his fans. Um, again, it sort of it, it exhibits many now characteristic Argento traits with the, um, the psychologically disturbed killer um, at something from the past coming back to haunt the present um, that sort of very Freudian um, primal scene mm. um, again it was one of the films where he had been accused of um, selling out and diluting um, his violent visions I think because the film was shot in the States a lot of people thought it was kind of you know it was marketed to American audiences um, but they weren't really sure how to promote it in the States I think you know they kind of strapped on this tagline with something along the lines of uh, a horror film you know as directed by David Lynch, if David Lynch mm. directed a horror film, this would be it. It was something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I still think it's not, it's certainly not one of Argento's best films, but it, it, it is interesting. And it, it's interesting for several reasons. One is it's the first time he collaborated with his daughter, or that he directed his daughter. I think she'd appeared in a couple of, um, of the films that he produced, um, like Lombardo Bava's Demons 2 and, uh, Michaela Suave's The Church. Yeah. But this yeah. was the first time that he d directed her. And of course, um, there were allegations of nepotism. And again, people were sort of horrified that, you know, this is his daughter and she's being subjected to all this violence. She appears nude briefly um, in one instance. Um, stylistically, it's also miles away from Argento's earlier stuff. It's darker, it's very grainy, it's sort of... Um, the look, I think, would be echoed in later films such as Seven and Eight Millimeters. Um, mm. Again, kind of demonstrating Argento's um, willingness and enthusiasm and desire to not rest on his laurels, to kind of explore new ways of, of telling stories, um, 
practically and otherwise. Mm. And that kind of realism um, bleeds through again into um, the follow-up film, The Stentile Syndrome. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting that he seemed to be going in that direction of realism, that he, a, 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 almost a more, more serious filmmaker coming out, and, and yet then he kind of jumps into the Phantom of the Opera, which in, in a way seems to be almost what Hitchcock might have called a run-for-cover movie, you know, when, when you have a failure in the box office, go for something that's... Guaranteed to pull an audience in, but did did he did he uh, succeed with Phantom of the Opera? Do you think? Um, I don't think it, it's one of his movies. Oh, it's it's very uneven. It looks just so rich and sumptuous. Mm. Um, and again, this the the lush score by Morricone. It is kind of drenched in this very romantic atmosphere, um, and an, an interesting cast: Julian Sands as you know the, the Phantom, and Asia, his daughter, as um, sort of the, the the damsel in distress. Um, I think the original Phantom of the Opera is one of Argento's favorite films. I think it was one of the first films that he watched as a child. Yeah, the Lon, um, the Lon Chaney one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He'd sort of um, tackled that story in a, in a much more kind of vague way with opera. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this was kind of like a full-on adaptation, but it, it kind of it, it meanders off into very strange, um, inappropriate places. <laughs> um, again, with um, Five Days of Milan, it has a very odd kind of sense of humour that just feels really jarring yeah um for me it doesn't work it's my least favorite argento film um and again i kind of think like we were speculating earlier about dracula 3d from what i've read about that it just it seems to be very much in keeping with um with phantom of the opera and the tone of that yeah you know, it has this almost kind of i don't know euro trash sensibility to it well, he was attached to director Frankenstein adaptation at one stage, wasn't he? Quite early on, I think, in his career. Yeah, I think um, he's kind of he's toyed with the notion of um, the great Gothic novels and yeah, uh, and also uh, the the Gollum. I think he was yeah. thinking about um, remaking or you know reimagining or at some stage in his career, but that that never happened. Um, but yeah, said that he has this kind of fascination with um, with the Gothic, and that's definitely that's evident throughout his career. Um, even in the more kind of straightforward psychological thrillers and Jalu, there there are flourishes of the Gothic in there somewhere. Sh- shall we jump? Shall we jump onto Giallo by way of Card Player? Um, because sure. he, made, he made Card Player, didn't he? And then the film about Hitchcock the tv movie yes uh, yeah and that was um i mean the giallo had been it hadn't been popular for a long time mm. and i think with sleepless was kind of hailed as argento's big 
uh, comeback movie after mm. you know, failures like Phantom of the Opera and Trauma and Two Evil Eyes. Um, and he kind of wanted to update the Jalo and make it more contemporary yeah. and explore um, more uh, sort of the police procedural um, methods of, of detection and stuff in that. And again, with with the, the card player, he kind of wanted to bring the Jalo into the, the 21st century. Um, and I think, I think they're they're interesting. They're interesting films. It is interesting to see um, the kind of, you know, the familiar giallo traits in a more contemporary setting and see where Argento takes them. Um, what's also interesting is that Italian horror seems to be having something of a revival at the moment. You know, mm. there are... Um, I had hoped that that Argento's own film Giallo, um, with Adrian Brody, would have kind of you know hailed this new sort of second coming of the Giallo movie. It yeah. didn't. No. Um, it took a couple more years, perhaps, uh, for the Italian Giallo to come back, didn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I'm not even sure that it that it has yeah. in in that sort of um, in its original kind of in that you know sort of context. There are a few filmmakers um, kind of making films that. Um, sort of homage or appreciate uh, yeah, sure. the Jello movie sure. like um, Amer and a film that's recently been released um, Barbarian Sound Studio that's right, it's very much a kind of reference though isn't it, rather than a, rather than a kind of straight up Jello movie yeah um, but I think Argento himself said that you know it it's very unlikely that there ever kind of that there ever will be a resurgence of the Jalo movie. He kind of firmly believes that they were a product of their time. They're going to be, you know, that's yeah. He he doesn't really see them ever going to you know going to be making a, a comeback. But we can hope. <laughs> well, while well, we hope, we've got we've got Dracula three D. Uh, <laughs> To keep, to keep us going. Um, you know, I don't know very much about it, but I've read the synopsis, and it seems to be a very faithful adaptation of Stoker. Um, perhaps more faithful than any adaptation that we've had um, for years. Uh, what do you think that Argento will bring to that film? I'm hoping that he will tap into the, the, the sexual anxiety that was evident in Stoker's original novel and kind of, you know, um, I think in terms of throughout his career, you know, sex and death is something that Argento has always been kind of um, dealing with in his films. And with something like Dracula, you know, that's kind of really getting to the heart of it. Um, I'm also quite interested to see how the film looks because this is the first film that Argento has um, worked with the cinematographer um, Luciano Tavoli. Yeah, that's right. Shot yeah. um, Suspiria. Suspiria yeah. This is the, the first film that they've worked on together since Suspiria. So I think... 
if anything, it's going to look beautiful, or I, I mm-hmm. hope that it does. Yeah. And again, not that, you know, 3D is or should be a big draw to kind of, you know, make people go and see a film. But again, based on the evidence of Argento's past films, how he can move a camera around and make, you know, anything look just stunning, riveting. If anyone can things with, I would say, and, you know, uh, in terms of the look of the film, I have high hopes. Um, but like yourself, I've read um, a number of reviews online that have been uh, less than positive. Well, I mean, let's hope. I mean, as you say, the the combination of Argento and Tavoli is really something to behold. You know, the idea of the two of us sort of drawing us into those incredible spaces that they've created in the past, you know, in 3D. I mean, that could be just just amazing. I, I would like, I would prefer perhaps to see Suspiria in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in, instead of that, we're getting David Gordon Green doing Suspiria, which is a, 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 an intriguing notion. What, what have you heard about that film? It's kind of been on the cards for a while. Um, every now and again, you'll sort of see something about it online, um, and you kind of it's a tantalising piece of information. Yeah. It's, and then it's, it's a go, though, isn't it? It's, it's, as it's a go. As far as I know, yeah. yeah. The most recent article that I read, um, I think it was basically um, the gist of the article was Argento has given this, you know, the thumbs up. I'm not sure if he's going to be coming on board as a producer or an executive producer, but um, he uh, he's kind of he's exhibited mixed um, feelings about it since it was announced. I don't know a few years back. You know, he said that he doesn't he doesn't really care about it or he doesn't want it to be remade. You know, it's going to be a pale imitation of the original. Um, I think. I had the privilege of interviewing Argento a couple of years ago and I asked him about it and um, I kind of, I, I put it to him that, you know, remakes can sometimes act as introductions to newer generations, you know, to, to the original film, to a whole collection of older films. Um, but he said that, he, he disagreed, he said, you know, if people want to watch Suspiria, they should watch the original but I do. I think you know it has the potential to introduce people to um, a much wider, younger audience to Argento's um, films. Well, Green's quite an accomplished director in his own right, isn't he? I mean, I, d- I don't know if you've seen any of his films. I've only seen George Washington, his first film, which was an extraordinary film, but it was much more akin to the work of, say, a Terence Malick than a Dario Argento. So I'm, okay. I'm kind of intrigued to know where David Gordon Green might take the, the film. Have you seen any of his films? Uh, can, can I haven't seen any of his films. Um, I've, I will, I'll be interested in checking them out, um, basically, you know, to see how he might kind of approach something like Suspiria. Um, I, th- I think what I would associate him with would be, uh, is it Pineapple Express? Yeah, uh, again, um, hmm. it, 
just he seemed like a very very odd choice but you know an odd director in his own right uh, he's, he's kind of pineapple express is a million miles away from his first two films which were sort of kind of um poetic realism really slices of slices of life poetic realism yeah. Uh, so yeah, in, he's a, he's, I suppose a guy who could really go in any direction, and we're not quite sure where he's going to go with Suspiria. But w- what's next for Argento, though, in terms of his uh, his filmmaking? What, do you know what he's got lined up lined up after Dracula? I think um, Argento is returning to the world of television. Um, I don't have a lot of information, but I think. Um, there's a new sort of uh, TV series on the cards. Um, I think some kind of anthology akin to um, Door into Darkness, each episode, you know, sort of um, Twilight Zone-esque. Um, each episode will be a different story, different set of characters, that sort of thing. Um, and I think it is, his move into TV again is indicative of um, the state of uh, Italian cinema at the moment sure. and has been for a while I think since um, government legislation passed a while back um, deemed that any producers applying for funding um, they, would, they wouldn't be able to get they would be less likely to get funding for their projects if their film was not sort of um, deemed to be of historical or cultural interest Hence, all these directors um, moving into into TV because I think essentially in Italy that's that's where the money is now. Yeah. And I think again that kind of highlights um, Argento was such you know a unique figure in Italian cinema because he's still there, he's still making these films against the odds. He's getting them out there. Sure, they might be you know straight to DVD outside of Italy, but um, I just I think it's. Uh, the fact that he's still able to get funding and, you know, still kind of going to places like the States and undergoing, you know, a lot of dissatisfaction and having people um, play around with his work, like like Giallo. He was very dissatisfied with that. But, you know, it's testament to his determination as a filmmaker to keep to keep telling these stories, to keep exploring these sort of dark facets of, of human psychology. Um that he's still there and he's still making these films and a lot of, you know, people who were his his contemporaries aren't. They've kind of disappeared into the realms of TV. You must know what I am. Nosferatu. I am Count Dracula. Dracula 3D is in cinemas later this year. James Grace's book, Dario Argento, is out now, published by Camera Books. And don't forget to visit James's excellent blog, Behind the Couch. Friday Night Frights. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay Stay scared. scared. You're right. You're not